Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. You're listening to the COVID-19 special episodes. This podcast is about effective learning and effective teaching. And now we all have to do this with a new wrinkle provided by COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, which is sweeping the world in a pandemic, the likes of which we have not seen since AIDS, polio, and the 1918 Spanish flu. As a result of COVID-19, many universities, colleges, and K-12 schools have either closed down or moved to distance learning, which for most teachers means going online. In this special COVID-19 series, we're going to unpack some of the major issues that teachers and students are facing, as well as ways to deal with these issues. Please note, we're not going to pull punches here. We're going to be direct and blunt about what can be done and what can't be done. We're not going to be able to tell you how to keep things just the way they used to be, because that's not possible. So with that in mind, let's move forward. This is our 10th episode in this series, and we're calling this episode Reassessing Priorities. Now, this goes back to our earlier discussions of compassion versus rigor or rigidity, depending on which side of that argument you're on. What do you want your students to get out of your class or your classes during this pandemic? What do you want them most to remember from taking your class during this time? There have been a number of issues and concerns raised in faculty discussion groups during the pandemic. Some of them we've talked about. For example, we've talked about the idea of students cheating or academic integrity in our COVID-5 episode. We've talked about the idea of rigor or increased workload during COVID-2. And we've talked about due dates as being set in stone and why we have them versus using due dates as guidelines. And we use our due dates as guidelines because learning does not happen on a strict schedule. We need to acknowledge this, especially because our students will be online and having to manage their learning more than before. They've got to manage their time, their energy, and a lot of new obligations. Mm -hmm. And there are other issues that have shown up more since we all sort of adjusted to the new way of doing things in spring term. I mean, these are all issues that we saw like in the first two, three weeks, you know, late March, early April, lots of people getting worried about, but what about them cheating? What about academic integrity? How do I make them use a lockdown browser? What about the workload? Shouldn't they do more because they're at home and they have more time? Lots of misconceptions, lots of what one article I read that was by an experienced course designer saying, these are rookie mistakes to pile on more work. It's a rookie mistake to hold a synchronous class online. These are rookie mistakes. They happen a lot, but we are out of rookiedom now. Most of us have been through this battle, whether we want it to be or not. And the thing is, most of us have sort of adjusted to the new way of doing things that we had to do in spring term. But going into fall, we're still seeing a lot of issues. And among them are hopes and expectations and sometimes outright fantasies about how learning happens and what people are used to versus what they're going to get now, both students and faculty. And of course, the wish for a return to normalcy in the fall, which given the pandemic cannot happen safely, 
it's really showing up in big bright letters. It's showing up in all of these discussion boards saying, I sure hope we'll have a vaccine by August, which is frankly wishful thinking. The last time I looked, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education is tracking how many campuses are planning on actually going back on campus for the fall versus how many are staying online completely for the fall. And the numbers are not good in terms of public health because the people who are staying online are only about, I think, 10% of all campuses in the country. And something like 60 or 70% are trying to do the, let's go back as if nothing happened and we'll just do a lot of social distancing and that's great. And the problem is that the campuses that are planning to go back in person, you know, this sounds a little harsh, but in a public health view, this is a dumb move. It's going to put a lot of people at risk. It's going to put a lot of people in a situation where they will catch coronavirus. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to start with basically the difference between the expectations of how learning works in an in-person situation, which is what we all had until, you know, early March of 2020, and the way that online learning works and what you can expect from that, and the rigidity and the resistance that we're seeing in a lot of places to even learning how online learning works because in-person learning is seen as superior, but we're not going to get in-person learning. So, you know, I mean, for me, you know, as an in-person teacher, my expectation is that the students show up at 1030 and they're there until 1145 and they sit there and they interact with me mainly by raising their hands and they take notes on the lecture. They interact with their classmates when I put them in groups. Depending on your campus and how many times a week you're meeting, your class might be a 50 minute block of time three times a week or it might be a 90 minute block of time two times a week. And you know we expect that the students, if they're gonna interact with their classmates, it'll either be when we put them in groups or when they interrupt our lecture. You know, that's, that's when it's gonna be happening. But one of the main things I think we don't talk about and one of the things that I think makes a lot of people who are used to the in-person, real-time classroom really resistant to the idea of going online is that in an in-person classroom, I get to call the shots as the instructor. I have control of what is happening in the classroom, how learning is happening, who gets to talk, when they get to talk, what they get to say and what they don't get to say. That's all very much the instructor has that kind of control. Now, put an instructor who really needs or thinks they need that kind of control into an online system, which is, a, we saw that a lot in this past spring term. A lot of people saying, but how do I control? How do I make sure? How do I supervise? And here's the thing. For your in-person classes, you do get to set that tone. I tend to set my tone more, uh, fairly collegially. I like to let my students ask and answer questions. Some professors prefer to be a little bit more strict. What this shift to online really means is that we've also got to shift our thinking. For those of us who are control freaks, we got to learn to view our control a little bit differently. We got to be able to set the tone a little bit differently because now our students aren't just coming to our classes twice a week at 10 to 30 in the morning. They're accessing the classes when they can, depending on if they've got to take care of family members at home or if they're an essential worker. They've got stuff on their plates that we're not familiar with unless they tell us. And that means that they're going to access our material for their education when they can, not when the registrar says to. 
Well, I was going to say that another thing that I've seen too is a lot of people worrying about how will my students know me? How will they get to know me? How will I get to know them? One of the things we don't think about much until we're confronted with it this way. I mean, you know, Denor and I are both sociologists and there's a whole sociological school that says we don't notice the rules until they get broken. A lot of our rules, a lot of our expectations, a lot of our norms have gotten broken. And one of those is the idea of the instructor as performer. And we're on stage when we're in an in-person classroom. A lot of us get a charge out of it. A lot of us get a rush out of it. You know, we feel really good when we walk out and we feel that we've communicated with the students and we've connected with them and we've gotten those, oh, I get it moments. That's wonderful. And a lot of people are saying, how am I ever going to get that if I don't do synchronous Zoom? Even when I do synchronous Zoom, I don't get that. How am I going to get that when I can never interact in person with my students? That's fundamental, that's essential. And part of the expectations that we will have to shift is the idea that in-person interaction is essential to education. It isn't. There are a lot of people who say, well, online education isn't the same kind of quality. It isn't the same um, standard. It is inferior to in-person education. And I would like to know where the research is that shows that because in a lot of times, I think this is just a gut reaction to, it can't be as good as when I make my students laugh with a joke. Well, there's also a really simple way of establishing your personality in your classes online. Every learning management system has the option to put a picture. So why not put a picture of you outside, I'm saying in an appropriate fashion, but outside of a work fashion. Show something about you that you like. So for example, I'm a giant sports nut, so my picture is going to be probably me at a hockey game in a jersey. Why? It's at least letting my students know that, yeah, I teach, that's what they're here for, but outside of the class, this is part of who I am. And also, you don't even need to tell students about who you are outside the classroom to inject personality. I mean, I found, and it was something that I had been resistant to when I was teaching online classes, I didn't want them to see me. I was uncomfortable with them seeing me when I couldn't have that back and forth because there's some things about how I present as a person and my body language that are a little weird. And I thought, well, you know, how am I going to explain that I'm autistic to someone who's only seeing me on a screen? And then I realized, and I, I'm kind of kicking myself now because I, I had to start doing this with my in-person classes that went online in the spring. And I started putting up, and I've talked about this before, a video about once a week of me talking to them and saying, all right, Here's what's going on. Here's what you need to know. Here's the stuff that you need to ask me about if you don't understand it. And by the way, I know this is tough. I know we're working hard. I know many of you are working essential jobs or you're working medical jobs or you are taking care of your family or there are other pressures. I get it. Let me know. I had student after student after student tell me that they, including kids who had never met me, including students who had never met me because they were in online classes from the beginning of the semester, tell me how much it helped them to be able to see me on the screen, to be able to hear me talking and not just lecturing, but talking about here's what's going on this week. I know the news is scary. I know this is frightening. Please make sure you wash your hands. That injected plenty of personality. Now, there are people who will say, but I'm just talking to a blank screen. Well, then put somebody in the room with you if you don't live alone. If you do live alone, uh, granted, it's harder. But um, I remember, uh, I think we actually shared it. There was a professor who was teaching physics. And so he did all of his lectures from the classroom. He recorded every single one of them. And he put a puppet, a doll, out into the seats so that he had something to lecture to. You may need to get creative. But 
you know, go into your kid's bedroom and grab a stuffed animal and stick it on the counter across from you while you're recording. Now keep in mind that your students are also going to need to communicate with one another. And this is also a shift because when we were in the classroom, they could turn to one another, you know, whether it was on the clock or not, whether they'd raised their hands or not, um, but they could talk to one another. Now, what we have to do is set up discussion boards and let them respond to one another, give them that space, give them that avenue, give them a channel where they can talk to one another. Now, this can be something that you moderate and moderate closely for credit, especially if you're putting up things for class, like here are some topics for the week, uh, please respond to these questions or please respond to one of your classmates, or it could just be event space for them where they can say, here's what's going on right now, here's how I'm feeling. We need to give them that option and that channel, that way to be able to work with their feelings. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think, you know, we might look into, I mean, I know that a few years ago when I was doing my online course redesign, I had a colleague who had just used uh, VoiceThread, which apparently is a way that students can interact at least with their voices. Now, I know it might be, you know, it might feel intrusive or intimidating, but you could ask your students to do voice recordings. And VoiceThread is just one option. I'm sure there are others where they just talk about what they learned. And instead of typing a discussion board post, they upload a link to their vocal or their auditory discussion of what they learned and make it feel more like you're in a classroom. I know that VoiceThread may even go beyond that. I've never used it. And it is something that you would probably need to have an institutional license for. But it is also something worth looking into because that allows you to maybe not recreate the in-person environment exactly, but give something like a touchstone so that students can hear their classmates as well as see what they wrote. They stop just being names on a screen. And the other thing is that if we're talking about adjusting our expectations, you know, I talked earlier about what in-person classes do. And Denor and I, while we were putting this together, we kind of wrote a, an outline of what we want to talk about. And in online situations, Denor has already mentioned, you know, students access the course material on their own time. And their interaction with their classmates is very different. Well, their interactions with us are very different too. It's through email or it's through online office hours, or if you've started a Slack channel or a Discord channel, maybe you, know, you have a chat system going on, but it's very, very different from what they're going to be used to and certainly what we're going to be used to as instructors. And this, again, I mentioned this, in an online situation, instructor control of how learning happens is somewhat or seriously reduced. Or there's a part to this performance though that I like a little bit more. See, in-person classes, we have a neutral stage, and that stage is the classroom. We know that our students don't live in it, and for students who, for whom this might be a realization, we don't live in our classrooms either. No, there's no cot. Nor do we live in our offices. I've had so many students who have walked into my office back in the day and asked, you know, if I was going to be there that night at 7, I'm all, I don't live here. Do you see a cot? Oh, I thought that you guys lived on campus. No, we don't. Now that we're meeting online, one of the nice parts about it is we can choose how we present ourselves, including the rooms that we present in. We can put something up that shows who we are. It's another way of injecting a little bit of our personality into the lectures, whether we're recording them or whether we're talking to our students uh, on a Zoom chat in real time. 
our stage is set or has changed and it's a little bit more of an intimate stage because we're looking into one another's homes uh, for the for the students that are willing to put their cameras on mm -hmm. for those who aren't and we've got to respect their privacy we can also look at the ones who won't turn on their cameras or can't turn on their cameras or don't have cameras we may think of a phone call as kind of uh, quaint but that doesn't mean we can't use phone calls to communicate with people right um, so we should address this expectation of having real-time and having in-person classrooms because we're all used to having real-time and in-person classrooms but right now the general consensus in public health says that is really not safe I saw something recently that said that a movie theater was like on an, an eight on a scale of nine in terms of how dangerous it is and how likely you are to catch the coronavirus well I'm sorry um, our classrooms are a lot more crowded than even the most tightly packed movie theaters and they've got the recirculating HVAC that's going to spread the corona to everybody in the room. This is not safe. So we need to shift our expectations from what we've always done to what we need to do. And there are some things we're going to need to recognize early on that are not going to be happening in the fall, even if your campus has decided to go online anyway. And one of those expectations is kind of how we evaluate our students. And I don't mean in terms of grades. I mean, when we build our syllabus, we have an idea for what each day's lecture is going to be about, maybe what each week we're going over, what each unit is. Doesn't mean that we're never gonna adjust it, but it means we build it with a certain framework in mind. Mm -hmm. And that means that we can keep that framework but we just need to adjust our scope on it a little bit. And what I mean is, instead of saying, what did I learn on Monday? Or what did my students learn Monday? What do I need them to learn Wednesday? Go, what are the big themes for this week or for this unit? What do I really want my students to get by the time they take their test, whether they take it on the due date that we've written or whether they take it at a later date? we can kind of adjust these expectations and instead of thinking what did they get twice a week or three times a week let's enlarge and say what did they get out of this week what did they learn one time over and over and one way to do that is to modulize your course now a lot of people hear the word module and they twitch and they think oh that's you know grade school or high school but the fact is it works and so, for example, and I'll give an example, um, whenever I teach an online class, there are uh, modules. And the modules are, here are the related things for this area, or here are the related things for this idea. So I will teach, and I teach it theory heavy, where it's like, okay, these theorists talk about crime in this way and look at it in these ways, and here's some of the things we know about whether they're right or not, whether the research shows that that works. But we won't be talking about, for example, a social bonds theorist at the same time that we talk about, for example, a, uh, a theorist that talks about crime as, um, as a trait, which is an early way of looking at crime. And then social bonds is much later. I'm not going to teach those in the same week. I'm not even going to teach those in the same three-week time period. And you may also have to look at your modules as not one week. You may have to look at them as two or three weeks of these are related topics. We're going to talk about them, and then there's a unit test at the end. You may have to stop thinking about your teaching in terms of the midterm and the final. 
because it can't break down that way anymore. Because the midterm and the final often assumes that on each given day, they're learning a completely different thing and it's not related to anything else other than it's just sort of, this is all criminology, so we're gonna talk about criminology. And that's great, except that that may not work and that probably won't work in an online environment. So you're gonna to have to learn how to modulize. And we actually have a, a, an episode planned where we're gonna talk about how to modulize your class, how to turn it into a set of modules, which will really help a lot with this problem expectation of what did they learn today. And a good way of thinking about this is we're reorganizing in a different way. Instead of reorganizing based on time or based on date, we're reorganizing based on theme. So you can still keep the same material. You can go over what you wanted to cover. You're just presenting it slightly differently. And for some people, that's really hard. I mean, if you've taught the same class in chemistry for the last 20 years, and you've taught it the same way every time, it may be difficult to shift and say, well, what are the themes? But look at this as, you know, remember when it was fun in grad school when you were learning all this stuff? Learn it again. Just learn how to present it a different way. Now, another set of expectations are the institutional expectations. And now we've seen institutions move to some extent to say, yeah, those expectations we had, they are not appropriate for the situation we're in now. For example, a lot of institutions, especially even big name institutions, have said, you know what? No standardized tests. We're not going to worry about the SAT. We're not going to worry about the ACT. I think in a couple of cases, I've even heard of grad institutions saying, you know what? The GRE, we're not bothering. Why? Because those tests require people to go into situations where there's lots of other people congregated in badly air-circulated environments where they're very likely to catch COVID. It's not fair to the students. It's putting an unnecessary burden on the students. It's also creating a bigger public health danger. So a lot of institutions have just said, you know what? That stuff, we're letting go of it. But the bigger one that we are seeing as a big bone of contention right now is this desperate in some places desire to make sure that students get the college experience by which we mean on campus and in person especially incoming freshmen there's a lot of campuses that are out there going we need to make sure that our freshmen get the college experience that they know what it's like and the college experience of course isn't just that you are in a classroom with a professor but that you can drop by their office hours and chat with them or that you can run into them in the halls and chat with them that you can talk with your classmates that you can get together in the student union that you can go to football games and develop school spirit these are all considered important parts of what we think of as the college experience but it's our contention and it's the contention of a lot of experts out there that really this is not a realistic expectation anymore and it won't be until we have a vaccine and herd immunity for COVID-19. And even for those students who do go back to campus, it's not going to be the same kind of interactions. It's not going to be the same kind of feeling that we would have seen a year ago or two years ago before COVID hit. It's going to be very different and something that institutions have to take into account is that college students are in the peak group of people who don't necessarily follow directions well. Yeah. Whether we're talking about on our assignments or otherwise. You know, college students can, can be impulsive. They can reject outside rules because college gives them that transition phase from adolescence into adulthood. It's a bridging mechanism. 
And there's an article in the New York Times by Lawrence Steinberg. And, and we'll put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And he says that drug use and criminal behavior peaks in the late teens and early 20s because the brain isn't developed well enough to control impulses. You know, when I first read that article, one of the things that stood out to me is he isn't saying that students of this age group and something like 75% of our students, I think he said, were in this age group, you know, late teens to early 20s. We know as criminologists that impulsive behavior, criminal behavior, um, uh, uh, unprotected sex, drug use, you know, experimentation, this all peaks around this age. And we also know, and Steinberg points out in his article, that attempts to curtail it have pretty much been failures. The attempt to make students, or rather even just make young people of this age, stop having risky sex, stop doing risky things with drugs, stop doing reckless driving. It's, it's never worked because it doesn't matter how many rules you put in place. If the brain is not developed enough to obey the rules, you can't expect them to obey the rules. And so assuming that this time it'll be different is a really risky thing for us to be doing. We may be asking students to do something that is improbable at best and impossible at worst because the physical space on most campuses, they are not built to the architectural standard we would need to have, make sure that COVID is not a problem. They are all built with the assumption that everybody can sit right next to each other, that they can pass right next to each other in the halls, that they can crowd through the doors. That's how our campuses are structured. And the physical space is thus very limited in terms of being able to get from classroom to classroom, in terms of being able to physically distance inside the rooms themselves, and newer research that has recently come out shows that physical distancing only really works outdoors. If you're indoors in a recirculated air environment, your risk goes way, way up because that lovely HVAC system is moving the air all around the room to cool everybody off or warm everybody up. And you know what's moving along with the air? All the stuff people are breathing out. And so expecting our students to be able to follow all these directions for distancing and space and more to the point, expecting them to never ever deviate from them. That's really an exercise in wishful thinking. And the problem is that if students can't socially distance well, then we're going to see increased hotspots on college campuses uh, from the campuses that go back to meeting in person in the fall. And uh, the stuff that uh, Steinberg wrote, he's echoing something that we've seen in criminology, and that is people tend to age into and out of deviant behavior. They age into and out of crime. And people age into it in their teenage years because that's when we like to take risks. We push the envelope. We age out of it by the time we hit our mid-20s because our brain matures more, it develops more, and we can appreciate just how much we have to lose if we're caught breaking the rules. But that's still at an age that's a little bit older than most college students. Not by many years, we're talking maybe two, uh, two or three years for most students, but those two or three years make a really big difference. And the thing is, and this is the hard part. 
there are campuses resisting going online for the fall because they want their students to have that college experience. Well, that's pretty debunked. We've shown they're not going to get that college experience regardless of whether they're on campus or off. So isn't it more prudent to stay online for the fall at least and ideally probably for the spring too until we get a vaccine in order to keep everybody safe? Because we're not just talking about the students either. There are lots of faculty who are over the age of 55 who are in high-risk groups or have immunocompromised systems or some other illness that makes them high risk. Are we going to demand that they go back on campus and risk their lives every day to teach and do their research? I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that that's ethical. And going online for the fall, yes. The reason it is difficult is because it's taking all our expectations of what college is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to feel, how people are supposed to experience it, and it derails them all. It takes all those expectations and throws them in the trash. But if we can manage to get most of our campuses to stay online for the fall, it's going to keep more students, more faculty, and more staff safer from the coronavirus. It's going to help reduce its spread until we get to the point where we actually have a vaccine, where we actually get herd immunity. And there might be the question of is this going to be remembered forever? And in one sense, yeah, we are going to remember this. But I think it's also a good idea to keep the five rule in mind. In five years, will it matter that we had one or two semesters where we were completely online while we outweighed the virus and got a vaccine? I'd say that if we're able to, let's stay online. Because in the grand scheme of things, keeping people alive, group survival, that's a lot more important than the discomfort and the unease of teaching in a new way. Now, some folks, when told this, have said, but economics, how is our campus going to keep itself solvent? You know, there's a lot of small liberal arts colleges that have said, if we don't have enrollment in the fall, then we're going to close. And there's been a lot of students who say, I won't enroll unless we're online in the fall. Well, that brings us to another article, and this is also one we're going to put in the show notes. Um, by William J. Tierney, uh, who was a, an emeritus professor at USC. And he wrote an article on Inside Higher Ed that said basically students should not return to campuses in the fall and the government should step up and fund the places that have to be shut down or with reduced enrollment because education is just as an important industry to the success of this nation as the auto industry was. And in, 2020, and, and in 2008, we bailed out the auto industry to make sure that people wouldn't lose their jobs and that that industry wouldn't go under. We should be doing the same thing now for education. And that is a fight that policymakers will have to have. It should be pretty obvious which side of this Denor and I are on. Education is not an optional thing for a functioning modern society. You've got to have educated people. You've got to have lots of educated people because if you don't, the society doesn't work. It doesn't function. It falls apart rapidly. So we'd like to talk to just two groups today, students and instructors, because like I just said, um, institutions, policymakers need to be talking with you. You need to be talking with policymakers about how do we thread this needle? How do we work our way through this maze? And that is something that is outside the scope of what Denora and I usually have information on. So we're not going to make a lot of statements beyond you got to make it happen. And I actually wanted to jump on a previous point that you had said about um, an educated public being needed for a functioning society. And I'm 100% in agreement. 
And I also want to, or both of us really want to emphasize that education in different fields, and this includes vocational fields. Just because Adam and I teach at universities doesn't mean that we're trying to look down. Vocations are 100% necessary as well, and that is a valid and valued type of education. It's outside our scope of expertise, but I do want to make sure that we also highlight the, uh, the importance of that. Yeah, I think that um, Kyle Capone brought that up when we had our interview with him in episode 60, where he said, the trades are going to be crucial. I don't want to be 20 years from now and have no electricians in my neighborhood. You know, we want to, and, and so education isn't just getting a bachelor's degree. Education could be getting a certificate in welding and being able to go out and do construction or repair people's homes. These are all critical things, which means going back to the point we were making about it, the government must step up. The government must step up and bail out education the same way it bailed out the auto industry. Because if it doesn't, we're gonna lose a lot more than just you know, a bunch of ways to get people bachelor's degrees. We're gonna lose certificate programs. We're gonna lose associate degrees in the trades. All of these are necessary for the functioning of our society. And I don't know, between you and me, I'd rather not see the 1930s again, okay? We did it once, we shouldn't need to do it again. So when it comes to students and instructors, well, for students, we've talked about communicating with your professors and communicating consistently. Uh, we talked about this really on our last COVID episode, episode nine. And as instructors, we need to know what's going on in your life. You know, something happened that's related to the pandemic and it's affecting your ability to do well in class. You don't have a good internet connection or you don't have a quiet place to be able to study and that might affect uh, whether you can talk to us during class time or if you need to meet with us elsewhere or during a different time, I should say. We don't know this unless you tell us. Same, by the same token, we don't know what lecture material didn't really click for you if you don't tell us. We need you to tell us. And if it helps, the fact that we're online means you can let us know in a way that you don't have to out yourself by raising your hand in front of your peers. You can send us a private message if it's during a Zoom chat, or you can send us an email. Uh, again, in episode nine for this series, we talked about ways that you can communicate with faculty even while we're all at home. And to the extent that you can, of course, keep up with your work. You know, we know there are work issues. We know there are caregiving issues. We know that there's a software problem or a lack of internet. And when that happens, let us know as soon as you can so that adjustments can be made. But in general, the course syllabus is your guideline. Don't try and cram an entire semester's worth of learning right before final exams at the end of the fall. And instructors, something you can do here is you've got to adjust your goals. Adjust your measures from what did we learn on that day to what did we learn this week or what did they learn in this unit. Use flexible due dates use them as guidelines. By about week three, I want you to have been able to do this and this. Make your tests open note and open book. Find ways for your students to communicate with me, with you. Um, find ways for your students to communicate with you. I've got Remind, and I'm going to start using that as a responsive system, not just an announcement system this fall, where I'm gonna basically let students text me back through Remind and tell me, hey, I've got this problem, or hey, this has happened, because text messaging, largely, most people have access to that, even in an internet wasteland, they will probably have access to that. 
remember that your students are going to be doing a lot of work on their phones. Make sure that your stuff is as phone compatible as you can get it. Reach out to the instructional designers at your campus and say, help, I'm a complete newbie at this. All I've ever done online was what we had to do last spring, and I'm still not sure how to do this and this and this and this. Can you help me? Uh, and this kind of goes back to uh, part of our series and of early on in the original uh, Learning Made Easier when we talked about how to manage your time, and that's use a wall calendar. Write down your syllabus in a way that you can see what you want due when as though you were meeting in class, and then work with those dates. Rearrange everything by theme, figure out approximately where you would put your tests and your papers and what you would cover on them. And that's how you can organize your online class. And that helps keep the dates and the material for each class kind of fresh and in your face when you're doing it. And it lets you put, you know, at the beginning of that week or at the end of the previous week, Here's what I want my students to know by the end. And one thing I will mention specifically, reminders. Reminders will be critical for your students. Right now, many of us still feel like it's Blur's Day, the 247th of March, all right? Our time sense and our awareness of what day it is and what month it is even has kind of gone by the boards for a lot of us who don't have to leave our homes anymore. You know, if you don't have a regular class meeting on Monday and Thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning, you kind of lose track of what day it is. So I would say find a way to send out reminders. Don't use email. Get yourself remind. And then on the first week of class, maybe even the week before or you know before classes start, put in reminders. Hey, folks, it's Wednesday in week two. Remember, you've got to get this and this done by Sunday. So make sure you get them done. And then just put those all in and schedule them so that they go out. You don't have to think about them. And that way your students will get the same reminders you would have given them as they were walking out of class. Hey, remember, there's a quiz on Friday. Just make it electronic. And ideally make it a text message because most of our students don't look at email. So you need to make sure that they are looking at it, send it to their phones, make it beep at them. So that's what we have for you in this special episode of Learning Made Easier. Please send this to other professionals and students who may be facing these issues. The easiest link to share is probably our Patreon, patreon.com slash learning made easier. If you're able to support us right now, we would really appreciate it. Please join us next time for our next COVID-19 episode, where we'll talk about the issue of mental health in these trying times. And we'll see you then. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.